blocking the city. How's it going, guys? Good to see y'all. How we doing? Hey, uh, thanks for that introduction, Holly. Really excited to be with you guys tonight. Also excited to hear about your basketball team. Uh, doing really well. Um, your other basketball team as well. I'm repping. I'm a Jayhawk fan. That's a little, little Jayhawk. Any other Jayhawk fans in here? Rock Chalk. Uh, my wife is a K-State fan. We both went to K-State. Uh, she is, she's supporting me well, though. She's, she's being happy for me, so I have a great wife. Um, tonight, we are wrapping up our series called Mindful. Really excited about it. And to recap, if you haven't been here, Holly did it a little bit. I'll do it a little bit more. Uh, week one, Nick talked about why do our thoughts matter? And really, do our thoughts matter? And he said that they do. It's because they matter to God. He said, our thoughts, our choices, really anything that we do, the outcomes in our lives, they all start and they culminate with what we thought. Nick, the next week, he flipped that on its head and he talked about why our thoughts don't matter. They don't matter in the sense that we often give them a lot of value. We love our thoughts. We love to think that our thoughts are what is true. We give them too much credence Um, But that was not how God designed us. Rather, God said, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways. We weren't designed to move and live at the mercy of our own thoughts, but rather put our thoughts into subjection to God to submit to his good ways. And last week, uh, last week was real good. Charlie uh, talked about how community is a huge part of even our thoughts. Not something we naturally do, invite people in to look at our minds, but he said, this is what God has designed for us. We should allow others into our lives and our thoughts. And it's actually a primary way God is directing us. It's a primary way, we, we always wonder, man, where's God directing me in life? It's a primary way. He uses the people around you to help you find God's will and to transform you to be more like him. And there's victory, spiritual growth, and sharpening that comes when we bring our thoughts and our minds before other godly people. And we've been in this series, Mindful, we are wrapping it up tonight, and uh, it's, it's on our thoughts in particular, and the reason is, is it's where young adults are losing the battle. It's the source of much problems for young adults. The CDC is one place I got the source, there's lots of other of your favorite sources out there that say that the ages 18 to 29, this age bracket is in the highest level of all age brackets for Depression, depressive thoughts, depression, and anxiety. It's in this room. It's this demographic of people, negative thoughts, spiraling thoughts, fear of missing out. You're saying, I'm, I'm lonely and, and I'm all alone and no one loves me. I'm still single. We're being heavily influenced by low and unhealthy self-esteem, lonely thoughts, life-ending thoughts are heavily influencing this room. The people you might be sitting next to, maybe people in your family, maybe your friends. So experiencing change for us here at the thought level is the need. It's not just this series. We're gonna go talk about our thoughts a little bit and that'll be fun and we'll get back to something major. This is the need. If we ignore considering our thoughts, if we ignore the thought level, we are missing a major piece of the pie of the solution that we need to our problems. 
I, I spoke a few months ago, and I told you all about my just riveting baseball career, right? You guys loved it. It ended my sophomore year of high school. You know, I was just a champ. Uh, I am going to talk to you tonight about my basketball career. And it also ended in high school, so there's not a lot much better that, that you get from it. But I'm also not one of those glory day guys, which you might be thinking. My wife might say that I am. But I, I promise I don't talk about the glory days all that often. Anyone else play basketball in high school in here? In high school in here? We got, we got a few. Let's see. Not a whole lot. Let's go. We got some ballers. Well, I grew up around here. I went to camps in the summer. Mid-America basketball camp is down the road. It's one of the best basketball camps in the country, if you didn't know, right in your backyard. So when you raise your kids, send them there. Uh, I went to Olathe South basketball camp. That's where I went to high school. Um, so I was a slightly average slightly above average uh, basketball player most of my life. To be quite honest, some of you are shaking your head. I was very average. Vince Carter was my favorite player. I think I've got a picture. Yep, there he is. Yeah, look at that. Man, that's, that's in the dunk contest. He is my favorite player of all time. If you know who Vince Carter is, he is widely heralded as the best dunker of all time. This guy jumps over seven footers and dunks on them in real games, not just for fun. He's actually playing a basketball game. The seven-footer is like trying. He's not just standing there like, hey, try to jump over me. He's like jumping, and Vince is just making this seven-footer look like a small boy. He was different. We, we don't see anything like him today, and, and I sound like an old guy who's like, oh, they were so much better back then. We won't ever see someone like Vince Carter in the way that he dunked the ball. Maybe never will again. There was a problem with him being my favorite player, and it is, and you can tell that I am not anything like Vince Carter physically. <laughs> I am a six foot two white boy with cankles. <laughs> I wear pants to hide them so you don't see them. It's, it's a problem for me. In what world am I going to be doing anything Vince Carter does on a basketball court? There's not a world for me like that. Long story short, I, I played JV I, um, for my uh, sophomore, and I played JV for my junior year, but I played, I started every game senior year for the varsity team. And you might be thinking, oh, did you grow to be as tall as him? You can tell I didn't. Did you put on a bunch of weight and, and get buff over the summer? I didn't do that either. What changed over that summer is I started to train with people who were better examples than Vince Carter were, was for me. I trained with two guys, a guy named Tyler Kalinowski. He plays uh, in Europe. He went to Olathe East, uh, plays professionally. And I trained with a guy named Will Spradling. He played for uh, K-State for a few years. And both of these guys, neither had cankles. They were blessed in the uh, calf department more than I was. But they were both about 6'2", and they did things on the court that I could probably emulate. I couldn't jump over guys, but I could be crafty like them. I could learn some of these moves that when guys were bigger than me, I could be deceptive and I could do all of these smarter basketball moves on the court, things that defied what the defense expected of me. And it, what's great about these moves is they still work today. I'm so much slower. I don't even try to stay like all that fit, to be quite honest with you. I, uh, my vertical was 30 inches at one time. I'm not sure I could hit 20, maybe not 15. I, I, I've lost it. I can't get it going like I used to, but... Uh, I still have these moves that work when I play. And what was true is I had been choosing a poor example for much of my basketball career. 
And when I found the right example, I, I chose the right example of someone that I was able to emulate, things started working. I began to see the improvement and growth I was desiring to see for so long in my basketball game. So consider some of your life examples. That's my basketball example. Who are your life examples? I think we all have some life examples. I, I mean, I had different role model papers I, grew, uh, I wrote when I was growing up. You see this person and maybe you just see their confidence. You like, your, you like their confidence. I wish I could just be like that. I, I wish I could just do that, act like them. You see the way that they live and think. Who is influencing you? The things they say, the things they do. We all have these people. And in life as a whole, and specifically in this series, in the battle of our minds, we want to look at how Christ is the ultimate example for all of us to follow in the room. It's, it's actually foundational, foundational. It's the fundamental truth to understand and learn to look to that he would be your example in the battle in your mind. And the reality is that God has known every single one of your thoughts. He, he knows every single thought that you have right now. He, he knew them all before he created the world. He saw your thoughts. You don't want to see my thoughts. I don't want to see your thoughts. He, he saw your thoughts he saw what you would think, and he's proved that he's still there and that he still loves you because he humbled himself and came to earth and paid a price on the cross to buy you back from that power of sinful thinking which leads to sinful living. When we commit to Jesus and hold him as our example and our Lord, our thoughts are put at ease and we find confident hope in the battle of our mind. Before we jump in, would you guys just pray with me for a second? God, we, we need an example, and we've had so many poor examples, and we've even chosen bad examples, whether it be friends that led us astray or even family members, people we ought to trust. God, thank you, God, that we have Christ as an example for us who, who, not, who didn't just like stand far off and tell us how it should be, but who came and showed us the way, showed us how to fight, how to win the battle of our minds. And we just ask now, God, in, in this room tonight, there's people in many places in their minds who have little to no control over their thoughts. God, would you just prove to them, to all of us, God, that you powerfully work in our hearts and in our minds and transform us and give us peace and give us hope. Let's pray over tonight. God, would you use it? Would you speak through me in a powerful way? Would it be your words and not mine? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we're gonna be in Philippians tonight, uh, a couple other spots as well. So if you have your Bible, you can open up there. If you don't have a hard copy, you can get one afterwards at the Connect Center. We say this every day. We would love, uh, every Thursday, we would love to give you a copy of the Bible. The, uh, the title of tonight's message is a question. It's, is there hope for my thoughts? And the answer is not no. It is yes. It's going to be a hopeful night. The answer is yes. There is hope for your thoughts and, and the hope is found in choosing Jesus as your example. 
as we've already touched on. After we consider Jesus as our example, we're going to look at the battle in our minds. What are some practical how-tos as we're out there, as we're not here thinking about Jesus in every moment? As we get into situations, how do we battle the temptation that our minds are constantly facing? So point number one tonight, a mind set on Jesus produces a mind of humility. A mind set on Jesus brings a mind of humility. So Philippians chapter 2, this is a letter, it's written by Paul to this group of Christians that they're sharing the gospel with their community. I mean, these guys are like really living it out. They have changed. They are living for Christ. And Paul loves them. Paul loves these people because he sees that they are taking the gospel message seriously. It's infiltrating their lives. They are living differently now because of it. And Paul's letter, this letter is filled with joy and encouragement. Paul is saying, keep going. He knows that it's hard, but he says, keep going, keep pressing on, keep fighting for one another, fighting for unity in Christ. But Paul knows even his own heart. And he knows the heart of the Philippians. He knows these people well. And he even knows our heart, that we are prone to ruin a good thing. Prone to wander. Prone to think of ourselves often even as better than we are. As more highly than we ought to think of ourselves. So Paul, here in chapter 2, verse 3, he's going to share to the Philippians that they all individually ought to share this same mindset amongst one another. Verse 3, it says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So mom, dad, maybe your friends, uh, potentially even the world around you has probably taught you not to be selfish, right? Like, give your brother that ball. Like, you you learned this as you were growing up. Don't be selfish. This is life 101, basic of the basics. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. Consider people around you. But can we all agree on that second part? In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. What does that even look like? Like, I, I don't go about a lot of my day thinking like, I see somebody, and for some reason they've made me mad, and I'm like, yeah, they're, they're better than me. Like, they're, they're, they're more higher than me. I, I, I don't naturally, yeah, we're shaking our heads. Y'all are like, yeah, you don't. I don't either. It's crazy. No one does that. How do we do that? How do we get to this place where we think of others more highly than ourselves? And let me be clear. It's not saying, hey, have a negative perception of yourself. It's not saying that here. It is not saying, hate yourself. Let's be clear, but... This is what happens when we, when we live this out. If I think, above, think about you as above me, and you think about me as above you, and that happens everywhere in this room. Everywhere in this room, this beautiful thing happens. And it can happen in a Christ-centered community where everyone is honored and no one is looked down on. This place where everyone is honored, no one is looked down on. Paul says, hey, put away your high-mindedness, your self-righteousness, your self-absorbedness. Stop thinking of yourselves more highly than you ought to so that you can actually love one another, so that you can put others above yourself and consider their interests. I think back to that even stat on depression that we talked talked about at the beginning. 
And, and hear me, there are definitely instances where we ought to get professional and medical help for depression and anxiety, but what can so often be true, even of myself as I think about this, is much of the feelings of depression and anxiety symptoms that, that I have, they're caused by me thinking about me far too much. They're caused about by me thinking about my work, finances, my relationship status, my problems, and if I fail, and if I do that, I fail to consider the interests of the person right next to me. We lose right perspective when all we can do is be consumed with our own stuff. And Paul knows this, and he knows us. He knows this group of believers. He knows this is something that we don't have down. We, we all agreed there for a little bit. We don't have this down. So he's going to encourage us to go for this, but he's going to point us to the right example, and it's Jesus. If we want to emulate this, we look to Jesus. Look at verse 5 with me. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying that you can have this mindset. This mindset is something you can attain if you are in Jesus Christ, meaning you've trusted for him, uh, trusted in him for the payment for your sins. You rely on him as your savior and Lord. You can have this mindset that we all shook our heads and said, ah, that's not us. We can have this mindset. And here it is. He's gonna point to our example. Go to the next slide. It says, Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There is a space between obedient and two, so my bet on that. This is the example Paul is pointing at. This is He's saying this is the example you gotta be looking at. Don't look, don't look next to you, right next to you, to the person that you've already made as your example. No, erase all that. Here's your example. Look here. And I wanna get into this passage. This is one of the most beautiful passages. It's actually a poem Paul is writing, so he's not trying to make any wild uh, doctrine arguments in this. He's trying to write this poem so that we see how much Christ has humbled himself, so that we understand and can grasp some of the depth of Christ's humility. So let's look at this verse by verse here. Jesus, who was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The word form here is actually a really special word, and it's a special word. It's in a poem. You use special words in poems, so it makes sense. The word form here in the original language means the true and exact nature of something, the very essence of something. So Paul is saying, Jesus, before he was born in Bethlehem in a manger 2,020 years ago, he was God. He was in the same nature as God the Father in heaven. He wasn't a man with a body like you and I know it and understand it. He was in the exact nature of God. So we, we consider that and logically we go to this place to say, okay, if he was in the, in the exact nature of God, wouldn't that make him equal with God? Uh, yeah, that, that's the answer. He was equal with God. Logically, you can get there. Essentially, in every way, Jesus was equal with God the Father, and this right here is where we start to see Jesus' humility. 
Jesus, completely God in heaven, separate from sin, holy and perfect, what does it say? It says, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Even though he already possessed it. He didn't count equality with God a thing to grasp at, even though he already had it. He already had it. He was already God status. But what did Jesus do instead? It says he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Anyone know what the word kenosis means? Fun, sciencey word. No one, yeah, I didn't know it uh, either uh, until very shortly ago. Uh, it's not ketosis for those of you trying to lose weight. It's not mitosis or meiosis for those of you trying to have babies. <clears throat> Kenosis is this word over a doctrine in this passage, over the part that it says Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And it's really important. Theologians and smarter people than all of us in this room have argued about this passage for centuries and centuries, really since it's been written. And it's important what you think because There are other denominations, there are other cults that have taken this in a way and they say, no, this is what's true about this passage. They say, Jesus was no longer God when he became a man. That's not what Paul is trying to say. It's a poem. He's trying to show us the humility of Jesus. We we are gonna look at what Paul is intending to teach us and it's, guys, here's how to love God. Here is how to love one another truly by learning to think like and imitate the humble mindset of Jesus. So the kenosis here, a right understanding, Jesus in emptying himself, he, he didn't stop being God. Jesus didn't become less of God. He didn't give up a little bit of being God. He was still fully God. He didn't give up his divine nature. It also says, or it doesn't say that he gave up the form of God. It doesn't say that here. What it does say, the kenosis, is that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. He didn't cease to be what he was before, but he chose to add to himself the form of a servant. The word for form here uh, is, is different. The form of man, the word form is he has the outer form of. It's not the other uh, old, ancient word that he used. It's he had the outer form of a man, the fullness and exact essence of God in the body of a human man. The kenosis, or the emptying of Jesus, wasn't by subtraction. He didn't subtract his divinity. He didn't subtract being God, but it was by addition or taking on the weakness of, of humanity. This is nuts. This, out of humility, God, uh, out of humility to God the Father's plan to save the world, Jesus obeyed and he was born as a baby. Think about this. Jesus had all of the privileges as king of the universe and became a baby. He, he could have became an angel, which is definitely better than being a man, a lot more powerful. That's, that would have been cool. He didn't do that. He didn't become a genie, like an Aladdin, Will Smith. He didn't even show up as a ruler or as a king. 
but he humbled himself all the way down as a baby who would be dependent on a mother. You're like, yeah, Jesus is humble. He's not done humbling himself yet. Read on with me. It says, in being found in human form, he humbled himself, once again, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus humbly takes on human weakness. He has the form of a man that he himself created, and he becomes obedient to men. Yeah, he had the divine power at any moment to take whatever he wanted, to lash back at anyone who, who treated him poorly. He could have given them exactly what they deserved and more, more than we could have. He could have given them exactly what they deserved, sent them straight to hell. He didn't do any of that. But he lived obediently as a child to his parents, as a brother to siblings, as a carpenter in the business, and to God his father as a son, and even humbled himself to his enemies. Sinful men, he humbled himself to his enemies who did not know what they were doing as they spat and whipped and hanged him in public. That's, that's the worst form of humiliation. That's, that's humbleness. He was humiliated publicly. Individually and collectively, we all have a measure of power, right? We all have a measure of status, of influence, and of privilege, right? We all have these things that, for one reason or another, we think that because of who we are, we're entitled to them. And also, we can often be tempted to use that status that we have to grasp for more. I want more of that. Like, I I have this money, I want more of it. I have these followers, I want more of them. This is keeping up with the Joneses stuff. This is desires that are selfish and conceited. We have this desire to level up our lives or grasp for more status because in our minds, we really, really, really care what others think of our status. In the late 1800s, you can go to the next slide here, uh, there's a guy by the name of C.T. Studd. There he is, 1800s. This, uh, he was a cricket player. He's got a dope name. Uh, he was born into a family fortune, so he was very, very wealthy. He was an intelligent man. He graduated from Cambridge University. Um, and as you can see there, he's got his cricket bat, paddle. That's eh, one of those things. I don't know cricket well. You were in India. Nope, he doesn't know. Okay. Uh, he was an uh, incredible cricket player. So incredible today as we look back on history and we see his stats and hear about who he was. He was, he's known as the Michael Jordan of cricket. That guy right there who's dressed like that is known as the Michael Jordan of cricket. We, it's just funny to me. Uh, you can look him up, but probably not on YouTube. It was the 1800s, so we don't have much. Um, but as you can imagine, this guy had it in about every way. Greatest cricket player to ever play. Household name and a dope name, C.T. Stud. He had all the wealth. He had all the influence, all the power. He had goat status. Stuff we're not going to see in our lives. Greatest of all time, we will not ever know the status he held. But in the year 1883, C.T. Stud's brother was dying. Um, his younger brother was dying. C.T. Stud was 23, uh, 20, nope, 24 years old. His brother was dying. He was uh, basically terminally sick. 
And he was faced, CT was faced with these thoughts. He said, man, what's the point of fame and flattery? What's it worth to possess the world's riches when a man comes face to face with eternity? And in the turn of events, God ended up healing C.T. Studd's brother and in response to the incredible power and status and work of God that C.T. experienced, he gave up his riches and he gave up his status as the most famous cricketer against, against much opposition from family and friends and teammates and he decided to move to China and become a missionary. He was quoted and remembered as saying, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. He learned to follow Christ's example. And that's what we need to do. He, he learned not to grasp at or cling to any of his privileges or power that he had, but in humi- humility and sacrifice lay his life down for his friends. John 15:13 says, "Greater love has no one than this that he lay down his life for his friends." Tonight, don't buy in to the thought and desire to always grasp for more. We we want to love each other, but at the same time we want to kind of level up. We kind of we we still want to grasp and we want to be something. We want to make ourselves something more. I know you feel it. Jesus said it this way. He has, he's got a different prerogative in economy. In Matthew 23, 11 through 12, he said, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is where our hope is found. It actually starts here. This is what humility actually looks like. It's not just not being selfish, but it's this. It's by not holding on to entitlement and status and dying to ourselves and putting one another above ourselves. We are freed from the need to exalt or build ourselves up, freed from the need to grasp for more and more things, free to love God and one another. When we grow in our understanding of how much Jesus humbled himself for us, there is no amount of humbling that we will not do for Jesus. Let us grow in our understanding of how Jesus humbled himself for us. A mind set on Jesus brings a mind of humility. I want to transition us now as that, as our foundation, as our example, what we are constantly looking to. We want to wrap up our series with some how-to's. We've talked a lot about uh, some of the stuff that goes on in our mind and some of our tendencies in our mind. Let's talk about ground meets the road, rubber meets the road. How do we fight the battle in our mind? What might be true for some of you in here is you've never even jumped into this battle of your mind thing, right? Like you've never gone to war. You've just thought that your mind is your mind and you think thoughts and that is the way that it will always be and I have no control. That has been all of us at one point or another in this room, just so you know, that's, that's okay. But tonight, you can start fighting this battle in your mind. You can take a, con- uh, a considerable look at your thoughts and how they're influencing your life. There's a story called The Tale 
of the two wolves. Anyone know this story? Ever heard it? Okay, this is good. Y'all are going to be surprised. I've got a good story for you. Tale of the two wolves. Maybe uh, you've heard of the author. We'll get there in a second. But the story goes that there is this Cherokee grandfather talking to his grandson. And he says, grandson, the battle between two wolves is inside every person. One of the wolves is evil. It's anger. It's envy, jealousy, doubt, sorrow, regret, arrogance, and self-pity, guilt, resentment, false pride, and superiority. And the other wolf is good. It's joy, peace, patience, love, hope, humility, kindness, generosity, forgiveness, truth, compassion, and faith. So the grandson thinks about it all for a minute. I imagine he said that's a lot of words. And he says, Grandpa, which wolf wins? Does anyone know what the response is? The one you feed. The wolf that you feed. This story was created by a great evangelist, a guy named Billy Graham. You might know him. And it sums up well the internal battle we experience, all of us in this room, but especially as Christians who have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, influencing them towards good. And he certainly ripped it from Ephesians 6, 16 and 17. Uh, that says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the desires of the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the desires of the flesh. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. The things that we choose to do and think now influence the things that we'll choose to do and think next. The wolf that you feed now is the wolf that will win later. And this is what we need to understand as we get into these four battle tips for fighting the battle in our mind. We trust in Jesus as our example, as our payment for, uh, for our sins, as death and resurrection has done it, and he has given us supernatural power to fight and find victory in the fight in our minds. The Spirit of God lives in you to help you win in your thoughts. So four battle tips. We're going to get right into them tonight. First battle tip is something that you've heard at the block one, maybe 50 times. Memorize scripture and know the word of God. Memorize scripture and know the word of God. We talk about it all the time. Talked about it two weeks ago, three weeks ago. It's paramount. It's everything. In Ephesians 6, Paul talks about the armor of God. What, for the Christian who is given the Holy Spirit, what is the armor that they have when they take into this battle that they're fighting day in and day out, even in the battle in their minds? And your only offensive weapon is the word of God. The book of Hebrews puts it like, as you see on the screen, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the divisions of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So what's true is when we look at the word of God, it's, it's the best weapon for figuring out whether or not our thoughts are right, whether or not our thoughts are are true, whether or not they are from God, are our intentions from God, or are they from our flesh? Are they from the good wolf, or are they from the bad wolf? So for example, 
seems like everything in your life is just changing. Everything is different every week. Stuff is out of control. You're not sure what is next. Not sure if you messed up and made a a wrong decision that's going to ruin it all. So you're spiraling, compounding one thought on top of another, but you've been memorizing the scripture and the Holy Spirit helps bring to mind Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. It says, the steadfast love of God never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, God. Literally in a moment, God uses this to show you that you are loved even now in the spiraling, in the wickedness of your thoughts. And that won't stop. Your wickedness could get worse. That love won't stop. He is still loving you no matter what, no matter what your circumstances are, no matter how bad they get and how bad they change, you'll never find yourself in a spot where God is not waiting, ready to be merciful towards you. You're in the middle of battling lust, porn. It's such a hard, it takes such a hard grip. You're not sure if you want to whip out your phone. You're not sure if you want to go to the computer You don't want to be back there again, but you've been memorizing the scripture in 1 Corinthians. No temptation has overtaken you, Luke. That's not common to man. We're all all struggling with it. You're not unique. You're not alone. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. We have these scriptures on our mind to fight the battle of our thoughts. Number two, second battle tip for your mind is bring your thoughts under the godly counsel of godly people. This is a callback to last week. If you were here, Charlie spoke on this. I recommend going and listening to it on Spotify. But uh, Proverbs 24, 6 says, For by wise guidance you can wage war, and in the abundance of counselors there is victory. I mean, this verse is great. I've loved this verse for a really long time. It's super straightforward. I don't have to dwell on it a whole lot to like know what it's saying, know what I should do, but that kind of makes it easy to look over. It kind of makes it easy to be like, you know, it's kind of an easy verse. It's probably easy for everyone. It's not that important. That is wrong. Don't fall for it. Don't buy it. There are many people in my life who I look up to who do this really well. They've disciplined themselves to externally process in front of somebody who is a believer, who knows Jesus, who loves Jesus, and just say, hey, here's my thoughts. What's wrong with them? What's, what's good about them? Where do I go? Recently, a close friend was recruited by a, uh, a recruiter, and um, <laughs> that's how it happens. And before deciding and before even making up his mind on whether or not he liked the job, wanted it, he brought me in. He brought a couple other people in. And he said, he's like, I just want to make sure I'm not thinking about this situation in a greedy or ungodly way. He opened up the door for us to challenge him if need be. And that's, that's a big life decision, not only in those, but even in the little ones. Even in the little thoughts and decisions. Recently, a friend was at the gym. He called me on his way home and he said, man, I, I took some extra looks at this girl. And I lusted after her in my heart and in my mind, and I thought about it, and I just need to confess this to you. He brought it to me, and what, what's good about this, it may seem small, and it may seem 
common, but what's happening when we do relationships with others God's way is we experience confession, we get it off us, we bring it into the light, and then we get prayer, which brings healing into our lives, even in the little things. So one, memorize scripture, know the word of God. Two, bring your thoughts under the godly counsel of godly people. Number three tonight is take every thought captive. Man, this is a huge one. Second Corinthians 10.5, Paul says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Every thought captive to obey Christ. Learning to do this helps so much in the battle of the mind. It's going to teach you not to be threatened by every and any thought that comes into your brain and into your mind. You don't have to be completely rid of intrusive thoughts. You're going to think stuff, but you can learn to not be threatened by every thought that comes into your mind by learning to take them captive. Like I said, you're going to think some things. You've already, you've, you've thought some things. You've thought some bad, I've, I've thought some crazy stuff that if you, you wouldn't let me speak up here if you heard some of the things I have thought in my life. But you can learn to take even those thoughts captive. Say you're single and following Jesus and you're feeling lonely. You say there's no one who loves me. No one, no one wants me. I'm, I'm lovable. I'm never gonna find someone. This is what you can do. You can pull a gun. You say Stop. You're under arrest. What are you doing here? That's what I do. What are you doing here? What is that thought? Do you belong here? Are you even true? Literally, what is your deal? Do I need you? I mean, it sounds funny. I'm glad you guys laughed. That's what goes on in my head. You can have a different monologue. It doesn't have to look like that. It can be a little bit more normal, but I kind of read my own version of the Miranda rights to my thoughts. But... It's not overkill. It's not. That was theatrical, but it's not overkill. It's necessary. It's commanded. We put it in place to stop our thoughts from taking us places we don't want to go. That's the truth. Your thoughts are taking you places, places you definitely wouldn't want to go. You find yourself watching porn again. You find yourself gossiping and dragging someone's name through the dirt again, speaking hatefully about a close friend again. It was your thoughts that took you there. It was your thoughts that allowed you to be in that place. Learn to take your thoughts captive. Arrest them. Don't entertain them, but you interrogate them. And then you teach them what's true. You say, you're replaced. This is what's true. You bring in scripture. You bring in truth about God. Take your thoughts captive. Last battle tip tonight. Number four. Number four is decide now what you will think later. Decide now what you will think later. In working with and helping counsel young adults, really just friends for a number of years now, this is such a weak area. This is such a weak area, a major weakness in our demographic. We all know the things that we don't like. We all know the things that we don't believe, the things that we don't stand for, the things that we confidently know don't define us. But what about the things that do define us? What about the things that we are wanting to be known by? 
This is all about making pre-decisions. Make up your mind before the temptation. So for example, I've got tons of examples on this. We go all night, but um, you guys got iPhones, you got screen time on your iPhones, you check how I've been on my phone for like seven hours on average the last week. It's really, you know, saddening. You're like, oh my gosh, I've wasted so much time. Time limits on phone for apps are a huge way to do this. My wife, Bailey, she holds me accountable to this. She has my password to the screen time app. And it's, this all stems from me knowing that I can waste so much time on my phone. Instagram, YouTube, next thing you know, two hours gone. You know, I, I don't know if you guys are like that. Um, I can waste so much time. So before that happens again, before it can happen, it can't happen now. She's put this limit on my phone that says, hey, you're, you're only allowed an hour a day. One hour a day, can you be distracted? You know, maybe entertain yourself for a little bit. Even then, sometimes I'm like, an hour? That's like still a lot of time. But an hour a day, down from three or four hours or whatever it was, because I know that I don't want to be taken to this place where I'm wasting time. In the moment, I want to go there, but out of the moment, I know I don't want to be there. Another example is you got a work happy hour coming up next Friday. There's going to be alcohol there. There's going to be crazy people there. going to be people who don't really care about how much alcohol you drink. And you know you're susceptible to it. You know that you, you could be, you know, get to this place where you drink one too many and you find yourself drunk. And you know the word of God that being, getting drunk is sin and falls outside of obedience and it nailed Jesus to the cross. So rather than showing up next Friday without a battle plan, without even thinking about it. You pray about it. You seek truth from God's word, and then you make this pre-decision of someone else who's going to that party with you. You say, hey, man, I'm trying to drink one drink tonight. Actually, I'm, not, I'm trying not to drink at all tonight. Can you hold me accountable to it? Maybe you ask another friend to follow up with you that next day. Say, hey, how did you do? Did you hold to be the person that you wanted to be? We make these pre-decisions so that we don't go places we don't want to go. So that the temptation when it comes is basically already killed before it shows up. So in summary tonight, first, Jesus is our example. We get rid of our other examples. Jesus, our example of humility in the battle of our minds. And secondly, feed the good wolf. Feed the desires of the Holy Spirit, fight the battle of the mind through memorizing God's word, by bringing your thoughts under godly counsel from godly people, by taking your thoughts captive, and by making up your mind before him, deciding now what you will think later. The battle of our mind as we wrap up is a lifelong one. If you weren't aware yet, you can ask uh, my dad over there. He's pretty old. He knows that it's still happening. Uh, the battle of the mind is a lifelong one. But the earlier you start, the better it can be later. The earlier you start battling, the better it will be later because you're not going to be feeding the bad wolf for years and years and years, making it stronger and stronger. The more battle-tested and battle-ready you are now, the more battle-tested and battle-ready you will be later.
and it will be hard, and you're going to fall, and you're going to fail. You already have. You already know that you're going to. At some point down the road, you're, you're thinking about it right now. Even as you think about that, maybe you make a battle plan. Right now, before you leave tonight, you make this pre-decision tonight with some person around you, right? If you don't know anybody, come up to me after. Let's make a battle plan, all right? That we want to start the battle in our thoughts today, and there's a promise that we leave and we cling to regardless of the situation. I think I got a slide for it on, um, on, the, on the screen here. And it's Philippians 1.6. You cling to this promise. Paul, in the beginning of this letter, he says, I'm sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. You are a part of fighting this battle yourself, but God is helping you. His Holy Spirit within you is even giving you the desire as you sit there in your chair right now and you're like, I need to do this. God is giving you a desire to fight the battle of your mind. I'm gonna invite the band up. Um, right now, they can start making their way to the stage. I... Uh, we're going to stand and enter into a time of worship in a minute. This last song is talking about taking, it says, take me back to the garden. If you don't know what the garden is, the garden is the beginning, the very beginning where everything was perfect before that there was even sin. And this is what God is going to do one day. He is, he is going to remove the pain and the suffering from this world. And we who are in Christ Jesus will be able to experience a life free from the battle of the mind a life completely free from sin, sorrow, tears, any bad things that have arisen out of sin. So as we cry out in this time of worship to God, we say, take me back to the garden. We are also asking for him to continue that restoration process in us even right now. He's gonna restore you even before you go and be with the Lord if you trust in him after death. Even now in this life, he wants to make something great of you here and now if you would humble yourself just as he did. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you that, God, you love us beyond our actions. God, you don't just look at all the ways that we've messed up outwardly. You don't just think about all the ways that we've hurt others, but you love us and see us more deeply than that. You see our thoughts and you've known them. You've known how awful they've looked, how we've just run from you over and over again. And you saw that before you created us and you still created us. How much must you love us? God tonight, if there's, there's someone in the room who, who needs to hear that, who needs your love even for the first time, God, would you bring them forward afterwards when we end? God, bring them forward, help them reach out to a friend maybe they came with and help them fight the battle. You are not telling us to fight the battle, but you are asking us to join you you helping us fight the battle. By the blood of Jesus, God, your spirit is available to us to walk in newness of life, completely new life separate from our past sins, no longer counting against us, but Jesus, your death and payment on the cross has brought us victory.
And God, we want to experience victory in the battle of our minds. And so just pray right now as we enter into worship, God, help our hearts to be focused on you and seeking you for the help we desperately need. In Jesus' name, amen.